Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community, this time special guest Steve Gill. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, please subscribe. It's totally free to you. Welcome to our People in News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Steve Gill. Some of you longtime listeners may remember Steve from my tribute to the longtime radio host, Phil Valentine episode. Now he's back to talk about his opinions on local media in the Nashville and Tennessee and international markets um, and national, of course. Steve Gill is a conservative talk radio host based in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a political commentator and radio host and was the political editor of the website, The Tennessee Star, an attorney who received a BA in history and BA in law from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Mountaintops, and then went on to obtain a JD in history from University of Tennessee College of Law in 1982 and is CEO of Gill Media Inc. based in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also a political commentator and conservative talk show host appearing on CNN and Fox News and many more he's gonna tell us about in a moment. Gil moved into the 5 to 8 a.m. morning drive slot in 2011. Show aired live in Nashville Monday through Friday. The Steve Gill Show also aired live on 87.7 FM, 1210 AM, WMPS, The Point in Memphis, WJZM, 1400 AM in Clarksville, and WHUB, 1400 AM in Cooksville. The Steve Gill Show ended in 2013. Steve returned to the air in 2018 on WETR Knoxville, The Gill Report. Steve lives in Brentwood, Tennessee, and has two sons. Gill's influence has been consistently recognized as he was listed as part of Business Tennessee Magazine's 100 Most Powerful People in Tennessee, as well as Talker Magazine's 100 Most Important Talk Radio Hosts in America and was recognized twice as a hero of the taxpayers by Americans for Tax Reform. Thank you, sir. He also received several achievements in radio awards. So who better to talk to you about the Tennessee media than Steve? Steve Gill, welcome to the Steve, Steve, and Steve show. How are you today? Thanks, guys. Doing great. And, you know, it's election day as we're doing this. So uh, in Virginia, in Kentucky, and uh, four or five other states around the country, the off-year elections. So uh, like you other nerds, I'll be sitting in front of the TV tonight, you know, looking at what's happening, looking at the results. And and uh, even if I'm not analyzing on air, I'll be uh, be talking to the TV. Yes, I'm sure you do that. And uh, my good friends in Washington State also are dealing with that tonight. I'll be there Wednesday to either commiserate or congratulate. We'll see how it goes. Um, and, you know, it's a good thing that you brought that up because, you know, Nashville's mayor race was September and my own town, Franklin, was October made some news on that one. Did Tennessee not get the memo that elections are supposed to be first Tuesday of November, like today? You know, you, you have these um, municipal elections in Tennessee and in a lot of other states that they schedule uh, away from the, the big turnouts of, of either an August primary date or or a November date because they really don't want big turnout. Uh, they, they want smaller turnout uh, that gives them more capacity to, to kind of slip in without the public really, you know, being there in, in, in active uh, uh, voting mode. So I, I think uh, you know you ought to be having election days on on the election day in November, on primary days, usually in August. Now you've got the uh, pre presidential primary in Tennessee that'll be coming up in March. 
but you have that string of, of the primaries all around the country that take place that are kind of the rolling election process. Uh, but other than that, I, I would agree with you. I, th- I think August and November are when you ought to have elections. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. When everyone's in summer and not not paying any attention. Um, so tell us some of the news hits you've been on lately. Uh, you've been all over the world on satellite and, and radio and TV. Um, what channels and, and what did you do most recently? You know, I've, I've been doing a lot with uh, uh, radio or, or Russia TV, Moscow-based. I do probably a couple of hits there. And, and it's funny because people will say, well, they're telling you what to say. And as, as you know, having talked to people I've worked with and, and worked against over the years, I don't think anybody's been ever telling me what to say. So I, yeah, I do present the American view, the conservative view on, on uh, RT and I'm, I'm on in uh, Moscow morning TV pretty regularly. I'm also on uh, GB news, which is now the leading uh, content in uh, great Britain uh, in London, a couple of mornings, uh, usually a week uh, talking again about American politics or sort of the global events. And interestingly, I was on uh, Bloomberg Dubai the other day uh, with a panel of a London uh, or a, a uh, Lebanon-based uh, 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 academic, a Palestinian and an Egyptian. Uh, we were talking about sort of the, the Gaza-Hamas-Israel uh, battle that's going on. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I will probably not be invited back because they kept promoting how Hamas is the victim, how Israel's the aggressor, and and how you know we, we can't uh, judge the Palestinian people in Gaza. Well, the Palestinian people in Gaza elected Hamas to be their representatives for the last you know 14 years or so, and with billions of dollars pouring into them into Gaza, they have not built hospitals, they've not built uh, infrastructure, they've built missiles and bombs that have been directed at civilian areas in Israel. And uh, pointing that out uh, didn't meet with great reception by the rest of the panelists. Uh, and when I pointed out that if they really wanted humanitarian aid to go into the poor people of Gaza, the, the Palestinian civilians, uh, release the hostages and that $100 million package would pass immediately and the humanitarian aid would flow just as quickly. The Hamas uh, representatives holding hostages are what are delaying everything and continuing the fight. They released the hostages thing would change very quickly. Again, they didn't really like that opinion either. Yeah, they build hospitals on top of bomb shelters uh, for a purpose, and that's not to cure ills and uh, help people, um, obviously, that's for sure. And I'm sure you, you made that sound like the opening of a, of a joke, a, a Palestinian a Hamas <laughs> representative and a guy from Tennessee walk into a studio and start talking about politics. All right. Well, um, I'm not sure if that was the punchline or the punching bag in that particular <laughs> episode, but uh uh, I, I held my own as uh, as I will always try to do, and then I'm doing. I do Memphis uh, radio on a station owned by Todd Starnes, WKAM. Uh, I do a couple of hits a week there. Do Jackson, Tennessee radio, and and do uh, uh, I, uh, Fox TV here in Nashville each week on their political show. So I I do a lot of media, but uh, happy to be with you and uh, and talking to your audience today. Yeah, I'd love to have you. Okay, so. Um, I, it's funny, I, I was digging around, doing a little research on you on what was new, what was topical, and I came across Politico, or or what the great Dan Bongino calls bull a co and not sure what I can say now on TECN.TV, but anyway, they ran this uh, hit piece on Republicans, of course, last month, Republican chaos has conservative media fuming, it's their fault, it happened. Talk radio and Fox News hosts created the political incentives that fueled Kevin McCarthy's ouster and today's speakership drama. Um, let me just frame it this way. Mark Levin called Matt Gates a POS demagogue for orchestrating the ouster of Kevin McCarthy from the speakership. Fox and Friends co-host Brian Kilmeade recently laid into our Congressman Rep Tim Burchett here in Tennessee. 
you were one of the eight speaker, uh, he, this is what he said, you were one of the eight, Speaker McCarthy had 96% approval rating, but that wasn't good enough for you. Do you feel good enough about your vote? Uh, Janine Pirro announcing twice that she was furious on Fox's uh, The Five, adding, you've got the Republicans going on there and showing how dysfunctional they are as Matt Gates is engaging in fundraising. What is up with conservative commentators attacking our own team? Remember Reagan's 11th commandment, thou shalt not attack a fellow Republicans? Did Fox and the Republicans not get the memo? Well, and, and Tim Burks has been a longtime friend. His dad was dean of students at the University of Tennessee when I was there. And and uh, I've had uh, Tim on a couple of shows that I've hosted not long uh, long ago and, and pointed out that uh, I had to toe the line at the University of Tennessee because Tim Burchett's dad was dean of students, and, and Tim quickly responded that the really, reason I really towed the line was because his dad had my mom's and dad's home phone number on speed dial, so I had to uh, I had to tow the line pretty well there. So I've known Tim forever, and I think he's done a great job. I think he's doing a great job. I disagree, and I've told Tim this, with the timing of removing McCarthy. I think they were legitimate in removing him. It was the timing that was so bad when they still had uh, six or so appropriations bill hanging in the in the passage line. Uh, they needed to wait uh, because the chaos that they they created uh, didn't let us move forward with the appropriations bills, put us in a in a tight spot now where in, in less than two weeks, the continuing resolution is going to expire. We're going to have to pass another one. It will require Democrat help to do that, which is what removed McCarthy in the mind of the of the eight. So we really dug a hole for ourselves with no what next plan for what they did. So I, I would challenge them on that. In terms of the fact that McCarthy had not kept his word, had had misrepresented what he was going to do and not followed through, uh, I think uh, they were legitimate in trying to remove him. It was just the timing was horrible and it did create chaos. But but isn't it interesting, Steve, that they always focus on the chaos in the Republican Party? And yet just this week, where you have major polls from not not Fox News, but the New York Times and, and Siena saying that Joe Biden is going to lose, or if the election were held today, five out of six of the key battleground states, that he's losing dramatic uh, support in African-American votes, Hispanic votes, and even young voters. Uh, and, and they're in a complete panic mode. But you're not hearing MSNBC or CNN or NBC, you know, uh, being verklempt about, oh, how are things falling apart for the Democrats the way they were playing it with the Republicans just, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, no, that's a good observation. And at the timing that you were talking about, that was right when Comer was coming out with all of the baggage about Hunter and, and Joe again. And all of a sudden, oh, the Republicans fall on their own swords and uh, make a big mess. And they could have actually got some traction on that anyway. And so for some reason, that same Politico article yesterday went back 17 years, Steve, and dug up a quote from you about Republicans in the 2006 midterm elections. They said, the Republicans certainly deserve to get spanked, he admitted to the Washington Post, Howard Kurtz, at the time. But if liberals gain control of Congress, it would be America that gets spanked. You were right then. America did get spanked in the Clinton years. Do you see parallels to 2006 and today? Absolutely. And I, and I think the, the problem is that the, the Democratic Party today is more adversary to America than, than it was then. So I, I would say, you know, if if uh, if, if America was going to get spanked uh, by turning things over to the Democrats, then 
you know, we're, we may suffer capital punishment at the hands of the Democrats, uh, certainly with respect to the economy, with respect to the open border that's pouring millions of illegals across our border that uh, suddenly has New York and Chicago and others paying attention to. They didn't care when the illegals were flooding in and staying in Arizona and New Mexico and California and Texas. But now that they're finding their way to, to Chicago and New York, the so-called sanctuary cities, again, they're just apoplectic about this crisis at the border that they've ignored for all this time. Uh, yeah, I was talking with uh, a group the other day about uh, Biden's prospects, and I said, you know, everybody keeps focusing on his age, which is a huge issue, his lack of mental cognitiveness. Those are big issues. But to me, the worst thing about Joe Biden is not his age, not his lack of ability to walk or stumble or whatever he does as he shuffles along. It's his policies where he has obliterated the economy, obliterated our independence in oil and gas and natural resources, has, has you know, eliminated our borders. Uh, has made our cities crime-ridden and, and and getting worse. The policies are worse than the issue of his age, and yet uh, you know that kind of gets glossed over all too often. I think if Republicans want to really fare well in this cycle, focus on those issues, not just his age, not just his infirmities. Yeah, no, that's right. And and I think it was NBC that recently just said that actually Obama illegally is actually running the show, and Biden has now shown how weak he is because of all of the social. Uh, uh, chaos in that party where you've got your pro-Palestinians, your Israelis, your, your pro-Israel Jews, Blacks, Hispanics, all of that natural constituency that uh, Biden, uh, or sorry, Obama was able to cobble together, not working for white guy Joe. Um, back to that article, since it was looking backwards, former House Speaker at the time, uh, John Boner, later explained to Politico magazine Levin, whose show went national in 2006, quote, went really crazy, right, and got a big audience, and he dragged Sean Hannity to the dark side. He dragged Rush to the dark side. And these guys, I used to talk to them all the time, and suddenly they're beating the living uh out of me. Uh, Boner said that he had one really blunt call with Hannity, which temporarily reduced the vitriol heaped on the speaker, but things eventually frayed again because he wasn't going to be uh, a right-wing idiot. What do you make of the news, uh, Fox being the conservative sort of go-to staple once upon a time, and what we have now with the speaker's race, who actually they may have gotten a more conservative speaker out of it than they had when they had McCarthy, so maybe they're going to wish that they didn't do that on the left. What do you make of the parallels between Boner as speaker, the new speaker, Hannity, who's still there, Levin, who rose to fame since then? What do you make of that whole uh, conservative movement uh, in media. Well, I think the Democrats who were cheering and eating popcorn on the sidelines and loving the the show as uh, Republicans, you know, kept putting forth uh, member after member to be speaker uh, and were uh, appalled at the idea of of Jim Jordan and then kind of felt like, oh, well, great. You know, they pushed Jim Jordan aside. We'll get uh, Mike Johnson. They didn't know anything about Mike Johnson. What we ended up getting was Jim Jordan on steroids. This guy has a genial personality, a great smile, a great story, a softer edge uh, and yet is probably more conservative and more activist than Jim Jordan. So they will rue the day that they uh, they helped uh, create the atmosphere that got uh, Mike Johnson to be the uh, the new speaker. Yeah, it's interesting. And a, biblical, look- and a biblical worldview, <laughs> which they certainly don't want to have to deal with for the next two years. No, and, and I think uh, has the capacity to grow that House majority. You know, it's, it's interesting that it is such a thin majority that uh, Boehner had the same problem that uh, McCarthy had that jo- Johnson's going to have. 
with that narrow, narrow majority and with, you know, rhinos, with the, you know, what I'd call the, um, you know, Kinzinger Cheney caucus still remaining in the House, you, you don't have a conservative majority in the U.S. House. You have a Republican majority. And, and if the Republicans had 20 or 30 more conservative Republicans in the House, had a bigger majority, then you, know, you wouldn't see some of this uh, this problem where just a few people can can tie up the issues. And I think Johnson's problem, having gotten the speakership, is now he has to cobble together legislation. He's passed a couple of the appropriations bills, uh, frankly, the, the ones that were left were the least contentious. But now they're going to have to do battle with the Senate to fight against a continuing resolution that increases spending, uh, an omnibus bill that will be lit up like Christmas tree ornaments with, with all the ridiculous spending. He's going to have a hard time with that narrow majority to legislate going forward, having successfully, you know, found his way into the seat as as speaker. Uh, it's 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 like herding cats, and and they're all on uh, catnip, running their own different directions. And and it's it's a tough job with a clear majority. It's an almost impossible job with the narrow majority that he has. It definitely shows the or highlights the contrast between two terms of Nancy Pelosi as a speaker and what Kevin McCarthy was a- unable to do and what Boner was unable to do. And we'll see. So what used to be the chaotic party of the Democrats has actually become the chaotic party of the Republicans, while the 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 far left progressives are all in lockstep. They couldn't even muster a censor um, resolution on uh, Rashida Tlaib after all the terrible things that she said. So. Uh, one thing that wasn't around in the media back in the days we were just discussing that they pulled that quote from you, 2006, was Tucker Carlson. Um, he was fired from Fox News after Rupert Murdoch felt he had gotten too big for his boots, that was what the article said, and had alienated large swaths of the company. Uh, there's a new book that's coming out that claims that, uh, but it's by Brian Stelter, so take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> Despite claiming to have enjoyed a close relationship with the media mogul and his son, Lachlan Murdoch, Carlson was forced out over a litany of concerns, according to Brian Stelter, the potato author of Network of Lies, who is a PP Russia hoax liar that also got fired from a failed show, but committed the cardinal Fox sin of acting like he was bigger than the network he was on, he said. Um, it was a tale as old as TV Stardom is a potent and often destructive drug. Icarus flew too close to the sun. Oh, he's getting poetic now. He got his wings melted, he wrote. <laughs> Do you know anything about that? And one of my big concerns is Tucker was a big draw for the conservative libertarian, let's just say, uh, entertainment eyeballs. Not going to have that going into 2024 when we're going to need everybody to be as informed and and motivated as possible. Any thoughts on Tucker and his career and media now without him well it's it's without him in terms of the mainstream media but i think his uh his first uh, couple of uh online podcasts grew 10 million to 20 million more viewers than he had at, at fox you know people i think give too much credit to those you know cable news networks and, and shows you know we, we're a country of 350 million people uh tucker and and the others when they draw their maximum viewership are looking at about three million and when you look at MSNBC and CNN, they're you know yards behind in, in those categories. So they really get an inordinate amount of media attention and media credit that they really don't deserve in terms of the actual numbers. And I mean, keep in mind, Russ Limbaugh used to draw 20 million listeners while everybody, you know, waved, uh, you know, their hands and, and, and talked about cable TV. You know when when Rush was dominating the media much more than than the best cable network shows. So while Tucker has moved on, 
I think he's moving with his listeners and viewers, and he's getting even more of them as as they continue to search in the wake of, of Fox News moving left. Uh, and I think that uh, we saw, you know, eight years ago, whenever Donald Trump showed up to give a speech to the thousands and tens of thousands gathered, Fox was going live coverage the whole time. Now he's kind of like Voldemort, the, the name that must not be mentioned unless they're attacking him, uh, like they do on MSNBC constantly, religiously, every day. They genuflect to the god of anti-Trumpness. And, and when you look at Fox, they've followed a path that is costing them viewers. Some are slipping to, to Newsmax. Some are slipping to podcasts like this. There, there's been a separation from Fox for a lot of viewers, and I think you're going to continue to see that happen. And uh, Megyn Kelly left, and she had a bit of a revival. Uh, you see others that leave. Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. And now it's easier than ever. Yeah, Bill O'Reilly, a prime example. So, uh, yeah, Tucker's out at Fox, but he's not out of the game and probably has more influence now and a freer reign than he did then. That's a great observation. Um, Stelter, since we're talking cable news, who spent most of the Trump era criticizing uh, the American rights embrace of what he called disinformation was always already a target of Fox News hosts like Tucker Carlson, who delighted in lampooning him. Uh, then after Stelter's boss, Jeff Zucker, was pushed out in February, Stelter went after Malone, who owns it, uh, who had said he wished CNN was more like Fox News because Fox News had actual journalism. Um, asked about that theory by the New York Times, Malone gave one of the most candid admissions you'll ever see a public person make in the guise of a denial. Mr. Malone said he wants the news portion of CNN to be more centrist, but I am not in control or directly involved. Um, have you seen CNN go more centrist after the firing of Don Lemon, Stelter, and Chris Cuomo and the rest? Yeah, they haven't really replaced, uh, you know, uh, replaced them with people who have reached out and, and made it a more centrist, uh, you know, back to the news organization that uh, CNN, you know, was originally, uh, where they had a lot more credibility. And then you've got MSNBC that, you know, I I watch Mika and Joe in the morning sometime just so you don't have to. Uh, and I can tell you that all they do is bring in hate Trumpers, some of them under the guise of being Republicans. I think Chris Christie's angling for an opportunity there. Uh, I think, uh, uh, Ken Buck, the congressman who's part of the Cheney um, Kensinger caucus, is going to go with CNN, perhaps, or MSNBC and be one of the reliable Republicans that attack Republicans that are the only ones they air. Yeah, I will say this for, for Fox. They bring in people from the left. They bring in members of Congress, members of the Senate from the left and treat them with respect, even if they don't you know, treat them with adulation. But they give them a voice and, and they debate them. MSNBC won't bring anybody on who will challenge the li literal ridiculous idiocy that they put out in the mornings that uh, just kind of goes unchallenged with, uh, you know, Mika's smug grin and, and, and Joe continuing to claim that he's a conservative and that the Republicans have left the conservative values that, that he admired most. Uh, he was a Republican from Florida. Was he? he ever admired. Yeah. He was a, a congressman in Florida until he yeah. uh, kind of scandalously left. And now his, found his new face as the uh, the anti-Trumper on MSNBC, sitting beside his now wife, Mika. Uh, and he sort of paved the way for the Paul Ryans and the Trey Gowdies yeah. and the former Republicans to you know get, get higher paying jobs sitting behind a desk talking on TV. And back to CNN for a second. I mean, they've got Christiane Anamampour, Dana Bash, Nicole Wallace, Caitlin Collins. Ugh, they're awful. Maybe worse than the guys, Anderson Cooper, Jim Acosta, Wolf Blitzer are still there, all uber libs, but the ladies are vicious. 
Have you ever even been invited on there and had to deal with them? They make the view look like, you know, Sunday school. I haven't done CNN. Man, it's been over 20 years. Um, wow. Yeah, again, when when you had uh, some legitimate journalists there, but it, it it completely abandoned any pretext of of journalistic integrity, again, with the host that you name and, and others. And then they're, they're foreign-based reporters or they're foreign analysts, uh, again, are in the same bash America mode 24-7, uh, that they, you know, when they take a break from bashing Republicans. So it, it is unfortunate because you've got people tuning into those stations and the information they get is what guides their decision making. Uh, and that's why we get such bad decision making. You know, when you had all the channels promoting, you know, the, the COVID vax and now uh, are, are, you know, kind of backtracking and saying, well, nobody got fired because they didn't get a vaccine. Like I'm sorry, folks. There are actually videos, and there were companies that fired people for not yeah. getting the vax, for refusing, and and to say that nobody was forced to get the vax. If you're given the choice of your job or or the vax, you you really are being ordered to take the vax. But you know, even with the videos of these people making these claims, you know, they're now denying what they said, denying what they did, and and CNN was one of those that was pushing the the uh, CNN vax demand 24/7. But likewise, so was Fox. Yep. Yeah, you know, I think it, I know it was Tom Brokaw who had once said that everything he does, you know, goes out into the ether and disappears. And so he wrote the book, The Greatest Generation, in order to put something down into into history and forever. They forget that this is the era of YouTube and Rumble. And so if they'd say something like that, like Dr. Fauci one day saying, you know, safe and effective, and the next saying you don't need a mask, that's ridiculous. Oh, put the mask on we can put a supercut together and make fun of you, you know? So at CNN, they also have Poppy Harlow. She's pretty bad, but they have Van Jones, a known communist that founded a socialist collective called Standing Together to Organize a Revolutionary Movement or very clever Storm, very Nazi. It, prote it protested against police brutality, held study groups on the theories of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin and aspired to a multiracial socialist utopia. I've been watching these folks very closely and they've been agitating for what I would consider potentially breaking out into a race war. We may be seeing this on the streets right now. They've got Al Sharpton on MSNBC, super racist dude. You talked about Mia Brzezinski. Her dad was Jimmy Carter's uh, secretary of state, I believe. Very, very liberal Marxist guy. Are they actually propaganda more so than even the news that was all spun out of Ted Turner when he was covering the Gulf War 24-7? Well, and, and I think you see it also as in their coverage of the, the various Trump trials that are taking place, hyperventilating and throwing out the most ridiculous legal assertions, bringing on people who, I don't know if they got their law degree at Walmart, but uh, they don't seem to have any concept of of how the law actually applies and how justice should be administered. Uh, and, and they're loving, you know, the Trump trials, but but can't seem to ever talk much about Hunter Biden's legal issues or or when you get a smoking gun like a check for $40,000 getting paid to the big guy, which, man, ironically, just just turns out to be exactly 10% of the 400,000 that uh, that Hunter got. They, they can't seem to report any of that news because they're spending all their time, you know, really attacking Trump and, and uh, you know, spreading the, the propaganda that the, that the left embraces rather than the truth people need. Yeah, lies by omission are lies. Jake Tapper's wife is a Planned Parenthood lobbyist and he's an environmentalist. So, not unbiased reporting from him, for sure. All right, let's talk about Tennessee. Way, I, don't, I don't know if he actually spends time in front of the mirror practicing his smirk to be just like uh, uh, Mika's smirk. I mean, she sits there the whole time, you know, smirking and and 
and I think I think Jake is doing his best to, to do it with the, the copycat routine. I don't know how many hours he spends in front of the mirror each day perfecting it, but I think Jake, you've got it down. I think somebody along the way told him if you smirk, you won't move your lips when you're reading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I shouldn't say that as a guy who reads uh, off the thing too. But let's talk about Tennessee. I really want to get into Tennessee. By the way, um, Van Jones. From Jackson, Tennessee. I'm not sure which is more embarrassing to the state of Tennessee that we produced Al Gore or that we've produced Van Jones. Uh, maybe the Tennessee three, the guys that disrupted the uh, the Tennessee legislature trying to work their way into that. But yeah, Van Jones, a product of Jackson, Tennessee. Yeah, we'll have Justin Jones, Justin uh, Pearson, Van Jones, and Gloria Johnson. We'll have the four yes. horsemen of the apocalypse right there. All right, let's talk about Tennessee. Memphis Market. Nashville and Chattanooga slash Knoxville. Uh, would you agree folks in Chattanooga could go um, a long day to day and have no idea what is happening in the rest of their state like Memphis and Nashville because the news doesn't tell them? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, talk about the vacant landscape of, of talk radio, conservative radio. There, there is no um, uh, talk radio station or, or a couple that would even compete that are conservatives on the air, either locally or, you know, sometimes I think they have a few uh, nationally syndicated shows, but, but Chattanooga is the vast wasteland when it comes to conservative talk. Uh, the Upper East Tennessee, Tri-Cities area, much the same. There's really no voice for conservatives on the, on the radio stations there. Knoxville is, is kind of slogging along is, is way behind what, uh, what conservatives there need. And it's one of the reasons that when you kind of look at the history of Tennessee, our politics today is really firmly embedded in the Civil War. East Tennessee was Republican, supported President Lincoln. Uh, there weren't a lot of slaves because the, you know, the mountains and hills really weren't responsive to that. So it was a Republican base during the Civil War and has remained Republican since that time. Voted Middle for Barry Goldwater. Pardon? Voted for Barry Goldwater over there. Yes. That's how, and, and that's how conservative Tennessee have been bastions for Democrats forever. As middle Tennessee has grown, you've seen some of those uh, blue counties in rural middle Tennessee that were, you know, um, the yellow dog Democrats have moved into the Republican category in the last 20 years, not because Republicans did a great job recruiting them, but, but they realized that as, you know, pro-life, pro-gun, um, you know, pro-low taxes, Democrats that the Democratic Party had left them. So Middle Tennessee, both with an influx of new people and with these rural Democrat counties moving into the red category because the Democratic Party moved to wokeism and liberalism and, and abortion on demand and all the other anti-gun, high-tax uh, issues of the Democrats, that moved Middle Tennessee into, into being decidedly red except for Nashville. West Tennessee, for the most part, the same thing happened. You have rural West Tennessee counties that were decidedly Democrat that are now firmly in the Republican column, again, because the issues that they were supporting and that their great granddaddies and granddaddies supported are with the, with the left, with the Democrats abandoned. So you've really got Memphis and Nashville, uh, you know, the, some inner city Knoxville, some inner city Chattanooga that were really the only blue parts of Tennessee. And it's reflected uh, when you look at the conservative values that are on air in Middle Tennessee, at least on radio. And then in Memphis, you've had some some conservative talk there. In Jackson, Tennessee, you've got Frankie Lacks and some conservative talk there. But but you don't have that in East Tennessee. And a lot of Republicans in East Tennessee tend to be more of the rhino category, the Republican in name only, because they're Republicans because their daddies, their granddaddies, their great granddaddies and their great great granddaddies were Republicans not because they've been forged in steel in the battle against Democrats and liberalism. They, you know, they go to the country club, they go to the, 
you know, the Kiwanis Club meeting and the Democrats are just like them. So so there's no adversary relationship. So they just kind of are in that get along, go along. And again, I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but they're more in the get along, go along. You know, we can all get along with Democrats because they're not having to fight them tooth and nail for the values that matter like Middle and West Tennessee have done. So you really have the three grand divisions of Tennessee that you've got East Tennessee that's much more rhino and Middle and West that's much more conservative valued in terms of both the, the folks they send to the legislature and the uh, and the votes they cast when it comes to the presidency. That's very good. I, I, I just spent the weekend on Signal Mountain right across from Lookout Mountain. And I tell you, they still remember what the Civil War was and that it was the Republican Party that was invented there and the party of Lincoln against the Confederates and maybe what became the Klan one day, which was the Democrats. And so they don't want anything to do with that. But here in Memphis and, and Nashville, they may have forgotten that history because it is there are three stars on that flag. They may as well be three different states when it comes to politics. Um, based and, one, one thing quickly on, on the Civil War and again, how it relates. When I first moved to Nashville after law school in 1982, I was running Lamar Alexander's reelection campaign and they had a, a, a Reagan Day. I guess a Reagan Day dinner. No, it was, I guess it was just a Republican dinner in Williamson County, just south of Nashville. And, you know, there was a good gathering there. And I asked one of the little old ladies there, you know, why, why isn't it a Lincoln Day dinner like like you have in East Tennessee and most parts of the country? And and she in that sweet little country, Williamson County voice said, son, they laid seven of our generals dead on the Carton Plantation. Pol- Lincoln's not polling too well still here, still here lately. <laughs> So some people don't forget. <laughs> All right. So Nashville is nearly the biggest market. Fox 17, Channel 5, uh, 2, 99.7 Super Talk, which now has Michael Patrick Leahy, uh, your former partner, um, instead of on uh, iHeart. Uh, are those are those everyone's primary news sources? Did I miss one? Uh, the Star Report now on Super Talk, conservative voices have now consolidated into just one talk radio that I know of. Yeah, I think when you look at at the TV networks, both in Memphis and Nashville, Nashville does slightly better in terms of covering the legislature, covering politics. But but most of the political reporters that used to be on the Hill writing for the Tennessee and writing for the Memphis Commercial Appeal uh, for the old Nashville banner, the, the print reporters, uh, you've got Andy Shear from uh, the Chattanooga Times Free Press. He's like the last man standing. You know, for the most part, the the, the coverage on Capitol Hill has gone away. Uh, the same thing's true with the television uh, networks here, five, four, two, and seventeen. You know, they'll they'll cover slightly what's going on on the Hill, but they don't pay a lot of attention to it and don't have a reporter that that is covering it regular enough to get the inside scoop, to get the you know the backstory of why this legislature. Uh, legislator hates this legislator, even though they're in the same party. Uh, and nobody mentions the fact that, well, that one married his ex-wife. You know, the, you've got to know the background. And the same thing's true in Memphis. They they barely cover what goes on in the Tennessee Capitol. And uh, they're, again, more focused on on local news. Uh, and the same thing's true a lot with the um, the radio stations here. And again, in Nashville, the conservative stations, you know, WTN has an entire lineup with not a single person they have on the air from Tennessee. Yeah, they're from, you know, New York. They're from uh, you know, Washington, D.C. That's right. Matt Murphy is oh. from Alabama and Hand is now, I believe, from uh, Louisiana, I think. Maybe. I yeah, Del Zerno was from, uh, you know, Oklahoma. Now he's back on on WLAC. None of them are from here. So none of them actually have the, the feel or the history of, again, why Tennessee is how Tennessee is. Uh, and they just, you know, they're, you know, just kind of dropped in. And we see this in 
uh, in conservative radio all over the country. They're, they're dropped in from somewhere else. Uh, they have a good voice and they, they put them on the air. They don't necessarily have any connection to the communities. And, and sadly, that's where we are in the, in the radio market in, in Tennessee and in Nashville. That's a good point. It, uh, so I did. Just, a, I looked at the numbers before we got on the air here. W A T E two point one eight eight million Knoxville. W R E G two point one five six Memphis. W K R N Nashville two million. W S M V one point eight three. That's um, uh, I, ooh, I don't know where they're at. Of W M C one point six eight Memphis. Way down at thirteen. W C V Chattanooga. So they're not even in the top 13 market, 1.127 million total monthly visitors. Um, Brian, we got a few minutes left here. Uh, Brian Wilson hosts The Drive. He's kind of the new Phil Valentine. Do you listen to him? No, I I don't listen to much local talk radio. Okay. All right. That says a lot about him. Uh, Music, we don't really have to get into that, but Super Talk does come in at number five in terms of what people are interested. Number one, of course, contemporary uh, from the Billboard hits, the Miley Cyruses and the Taylor Swift. And then you got your 96.3 Jack FM, adult hits, number two, 95.5 country, big 98 country again. And then again, number five is Super Talk. So people don't even care that much about uh, talk radio. Um, let's yes, see. We have Sports Talk that does pretty well. You have uh, The Zone here in Nashville that does very well. Uh, but I think you're seeing, particularly post-COVID, uh, these these stations are really having to fight for how they how they get their listenership. And, and again, unfortunately, I think these radio networks and, and stations, they they hire music people to either be their program director or to be their salespeople. And they don't know how to sell or how to run conservative talk. So they're waiting for people to call and make the orders. They're not going out there. They're not listeners to the station they're selling. So they don't know how to sell conservative talk. So you're seeing uh, conservative talk, you know, kind of fall down the wayside, even though it's still what what is running the advertising for these networks, they're getting more money than these music stations are bringing in. Because when I can go on my, you know, iPhone and listen to whatever I want when I want, I don't have to listen to whatever some programmer in Washington D.C. or New York is airing the same six songs every hour repetitively. I can listen to what I want to. So people are turning away from from their music stations. Talk radio is providing their ad revenue, and yet it could do even better. And then the end, I would just say again that you've got these programmers that look at at uh, and talk as a way to, to to make money, not to to actually have an impact. You know, they're running 16 minute spots an hour on conservative talk. They don't run that much on music. They don't run traffic and weather every 10 minutes on music stations. If it's so important to do that, why aren't you doing it on your quote hot stations? They're not doing it there. They're getting bigger numbers. Why not cut back some of? I mean, when I get in my car in the morning, I already know exactly what the weather is. I checked it on my phone. I know what the traffic is like it was yesterday. (laughs) And yet it's this old style. Let's do it like we've done it for 40 years. And and that's driving away listeners who can listen to podcasts instead of having to listen to the same old, same old. Which I'm happy about. But okay, let's in the remaining seconds here, let's talk print. Uh, We've got the big one, the Tennessean, very liberal outlet. Williamson Herald here, same thing. Tennessee Holler, Tennessee Lookout, not even real. Chattanooga Times, Free Press, I think it's called, or Chattanoogan.com. But with Nashville being the capital, there really isn't much. And it's certainly not talking to that audience you talked about. That's the sea of red with the islands of blue kind of littered in there. They just talk about themselves to themselves all day long. What's your thought on what's near and dear to my heart, the print media in Tennessee? 
Well, again, you've got the, the same kind of issue, I think, with the TV stations. They focus on Davidson County alone, and there are more people who live in Williamson, Wilson, Rutherford, and and Sumner counties than live in Nashville, and yet they don't cover the news there. And and certainly the Tennessean treats the suburban areas with disdain, if not outright contempt. So they're not getting uh, their stories in the news. They're certainly not going out and finding advertisers that want to advertise to a publication that despises their communities. So you're seeing the Tennessean get thinner and thinner, and you've seen the Gannett publications nationally uh, increasingly move to maybe three print editions a week or maybe one or two print editions a week. Print is dying because of what they're doing, not because people don't want to still read it, but we can read it on our phones. We can read it on our laptops. We don't have to go down, put, you know, a dollar in the, uh, in the little box and then pull out something that's, uh, that's nothing to line our bird cages or to start our kindling uh, fires, but okay. Last question, wokeness and advertising revenues. Uh, I've been in the media game two years now. Uh, and what I've come to realize is billionaires with a lot of money to burn, like Bezos with Washington Post, Mexico's Pemex billionaire Carlos Slim with New York Times, with help from the CIA and State Department taxpayers funds, of course, Rupert Murdoch from Australia, or Pearson Publishing in the UK that own the printing of the Bible, make a lot of revenue from that, and Black Press out of Canada that own 150 local papers, but nobody knows it. If you don't operate news as a loss from your other businesses, like Jack Dorsey owns Square processing so he could lose a ton on Twitter, it wouldn't matter, or Amazon or something else, it's really expensive and darn near impossible to keep going out of pocket for news, truth in news, not beholden to Pfizer or Ford or Soros or whoever. What do you think the future of American journalism is more like BBC and CNN, state owned or more citizen journalism like me and Daily Wire and you? I think uh, that it's you, me, and Daily Wire and uh, GB News, Great Britain News in, in London that's now beating BBC. Uh, it is folks that are finding a way to tell the truth and yet know that all those ears, all those eyeballs out there are going to provide what the advertisers ultimately want. You know, frankly, advertisers sacrifice their own business to promote their own wokeness, and, and they're paying a price for it. But it's a price we all pay. Uh, our founders knew that for a democracy to work, we had to have an engaged and informed public. And, and when we're misinformed or not engaged because we don't trust the media, democracy starts to fall apart and, and we're frailing at the edges because of that. We've got to have uh, listeners and viewers that are engaged because they know this is real information, not the fake news they're getting from print, from TV and from some radio stations. All right, Steve, thank you so very much. Uh, look forward to having you on a fourth time. Uh, tell everyone real quick, because I am out of time, uh, what your Twitter handle is, and then I'm going to let you go. I got banned from Twitter for calling uh, for the death of the Hamas terrorists. So uh, the uh, anti-Semite pro-Hamas Elon Musk banned me from Twitter, but they can find me on uh, Instagram at Steve Gill, the number one, Steve Gill one, and on Facebook at Steve Gill. All right. God bless you, sir. Thanks a lot. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea 
and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com I don't Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what'd you think of our recurring guest, Steve Gill? Oh, it was great. It was great. Um, he's a, a live wire like you are, and um, live wire, live wire. <laughs> That's a Motley Crue song, man. I'll take it. I'll take it. I love the eighties. All right. Uh, well, we're gonna run out of time, so I'm gonna go through this real fast because I did the work, and I want to tell everybody: dozens of famous birds from monikers clouded by racism and misogyny to be renamed by Catherine Dunleavy. I bet you didn't know this. Dozens of famous bird species will lose their familiar names in the coming months and years as part of a nationwide effort to eliminate monikers clouded by racism and to diversify bird watching. The American um, Ornithology Society, which is responsible for standardizing English bird names across the Americas, announced plans Wednesday to ditch any bird classifications derived from a person's name instead identifying them by their physical traits or their habitats. That's racist. Although not all fowl named after people are linked to unsavory histories, the understanding mainly aims, the undertaking mainly aims to purge names connected to racism, misogyny, and genocide, the AOS said. Birds with names deemed offensive and exclusionary will also be rechristened. Oh, there is some biblical reference. As scientists, we work to eliminate bias in science, but there has been historic bias in how birds are named and who might have a bird named in their honor. AOS executive director and CEO Judith Scarl, PhD, of course, he has a PhD, PhD in bird names. Can't memorize all those with a bachelor's degree. Got to go to school for 10 years for this. Before we go on with the article, let's look a little into judith shall we uh, i said he but it's a she judith scarl we shall dr scarl comes to the aos from the association of fish and wildlife agencies where she served as u.s coordinator of the north american bird conservative In initiative and as bird conservation program manager for afwa for nabci she coordinated efforts of a 30-member partnership of federal and state agencies and non-governmental organizations to identify and address common bird conservation priorities and challenges and to develop a unified voice for bird conservation efforts for AFWA, Dr. Scarl worked with state agencies on bird-focused issues ranging from incidental take to feral and free-ranging cats to grassland bird conservation. Wow, impressive, wow. huh? Dr. Scarl is strongly committed to helping the AOS achieve its potential through open engagement internally and strategic engagement externally. She views this new role as an opportunity to more closely align ornithological research with conservation efforts, helping AOS explore and foster all elements of science that link to bird conservation, including human dimensions, quote, a critical element, she asserts, of doing strong bird conservation and an important piece of the ornithological research puzzle. Dr. Scarl, wait for it, earned an AB from Harvard University <laughs> with a joint concentration in biology and psychology and a PhD in neurobiology, neuro biology and behavioral from cornell university <laughs> ah there it is harvard and cornell, cornell. back to the artist 
article, Judith Scarl, PhD, said in a statement, exclusionary naming conventions developed in the 1800s, clouded by racism and misogyny, don't work for us today. And the time has come for us to transform this process and redirect the focus to the birds where it belongs. The naming purge will likely affect up to 80 different species in the U.S. and Canada, though the process is only in the early stages. The AOS decision comes after years of mounting pressure from the bird watching or birding community to revoke the recognition of racist historical figures whose names were bestowed upon the fowl. That means that the Audubon Shearwater, a seabird native to the southeastern United States, will no longer be linked to John James Audubon, the founder of the epon eponymous New York City birding community and slave owner who opposed abolition. Audubon's own organization voted in March to drop its problematic founder's name, citing his <laughs> legacy of white supremacy. I looked it up. New York City Audubon's board of directors has today announced its decision to change the organization's name, dropping Audubon. NYC Audubon Executive Director Jessica Wilson wrote in the email to supporters. So I had to look her up, right? I mean, who the hell are these people running around ruining everything they touch? Coming from a strong background in nonprofit leadership dedicated to urban green spaces and environmental conservation, Jessica Wilson took the helm of NYC Audubon in late January, educated at... Dun, 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 Amherst College and Columbia <laughs> Business School. See a pattern, folks? After getting my MBA, I spent time in marketing for American Express. Oh, capitalist pig. But my heart eventually pulled me back to the nonprofit sector. At the National Audubon Society, I led marketing engagement. And for much of the last decade, I've been lucky to work in some of New York's greatest parks and open spaces. Too much fresh air. I was at Prospect Park Alliance for several years and most recently at the Friends of Governor's Island, where I was able to combine my passion for urban wildlife and environmental sustainability with my underground background and community engagement. She added that the nonprofit will begin a process to develop a new name that embodies our organization's values and is inclusive and welcoming to all New Yorkers. The Audubon ban marked the culmination of an eight-month-long assessment that deemed the surname to be a barrier to entry for many into the organization. They wouldn't even have known. The thick-billed longspur, a small ground-feeding bird native to North America, was renamed in 2020 after nearly three centuries of being named for Captain John P. McGowan, a Confederate soldier who is perceived today by money as a symbol of slavery and racism. Oh my gosh, a Confederate uh... bird must have been a slave-holding bird. The renaming pilot project will kick off in 2024 oh goody in two months with an initial group of between 70 and 80 birds being reclassified in the u.s and canada the initiative will continue for months and years the aos said with up to 260 birds due to be reviewed across the americas and associated islands i wonder if the blue-footed booby will now be the chest feeding rainbow <laughs> foot or the dylan mulvaney and from audubon itself on november 1st by rebecca heisman all North American birds named after people will soon get new names. After years of consideration and little news, uh, this week's announcement by the American Ornithological uh, Society caught many birders by surprise. The American Society, the organization of bird scientists that determines the official English and Latin names for North American bird species, announced this week that they are embarking in a process to change the English names of the approximately 152 North American birds and 111 South American birds named after people. Oh. Not just racist, Confederate, rebel-sounding names, all people names. 
Birds with eponymous names can be found in every section of a field guide from the Bullock's Oriole to the Ross's Goose and Wilson's Plover. Oh Among sparrows alone, 11 different species are named after people. Although birders use these names on a regular basis, their origin can be opaque and have often been nearly forgotten. Across the globe, many eponymous names were coined in the 18th and 19th centuries as white naturalists discovered new birds in territories previously held by non-white peoples, naming them after the original collectors of bird species, fellow scientists, other prominent figures of the time, and even their family members. What do we got? Five minutes left? Yeah. All right. Since then, the AOS has continued to cautiously engage with the idea of changing eponymous bird names. We are a group of scientists, and we study things and we make very considered decisions, says Colleen Handel, a wildlife biologist with the USGS's Alaska Science Center in Anchorage, Alaska. Hold up. Another name of a white liberal woman. Anchorage. Well, what do you know? BA, 1974, Harvard University, Cambridge, MA, Biological Sciences, MS, 1982, University of California, Davis. Oh, man, they're woke. PhD, 20, 2002, University of California, Davis, California Ecology. I can't believe it. She's a college graduated white girl. Birds have been facing unprecedented conservation challenges with the loss of 3 billion birds over the last half century. How many people have died in the last half century? <laughs> and we need to have people united in very positive ways towards reversing those declines and talking, taking care of the birds that we have this tremendous responsibility for. Who said? Who put her in charge? Says Handel. The names of birds are the entryway into the world of birds, she notes. We want to make sure that this world of birds is open to as many people as want to be involved with them. Well, you can't name them after a Confederate then. Just not the names of those that discovered them. Academia, man, full of stupid people. Uh, play clip number two. It's short. Uh, let's see. I think it is. California. A solar energy plant is getting flack for killing birds. These facilities in the desert are supposed to be the future of clean energy, but now federal wildlife officials want to pause their expansion until they get a handle on the growing number of bird deaths. It looks like a mirage in the middle of the Mojave Desert, but it's actually 170,000 sets of mirrors the size of garage doors called heliostats. How much power do you get from each one? So this project will fuel 140,000 California homes. So effectively, one heliostat can power one California home. So Tom Doyle is the CEO of NRG, the company behind this $2.2 billion solar project. It's now under fire because the heat it produces, up to 900 degrees, is charring the feathers of birds flying through, often causing them to crash and die. Workers on site call them streamers because of the smoke plume created when the birds ignite in midair. In a report on avian mortality at three Southern California facilities, federal investigators found that these solar farms may act as a mega trap, attracting insects which in turn attract insect eating birds, which are then incapacitated. More than 500 birds have died at one plant and 1,000 more are expected to die every year at another. The so this was actually put out nine years ago on here, Steve, and yeah. they've got these 900 things all degrees, over. enough of those solar farms, and we won't have any birds to name. We won't be able to find the supernova finch, the flaming comet, red belly bird, the solar flare parrot. More progressive madness made in China at America's expense. I'm Bill Osier. I am the president of the Battle of Nashville Trust in Nashville, Tennessee. 
I'm here on the Mill Creek View podcast. All right. Welcome to my quotes of the week. Um, before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View podcast and see us here on TECN.TV, uh, uh, 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes, Spotify or iTunes, search for Mill Creek View and hit the subscribe button and follow us. And again, 5 p.m. Eastern, TECN.TV. And I really hope you like it. First, they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Martin Niemöller. Frederick Gustav Emil Martin Niemöller was a German theologian and Lutheran pastor. He is best known for his opposition to the Nazi regime during the late 1930s. Didn't start that way. Niemöller was initially a supporter of Adolf Hitler and a self-identified anti-Semite. For his opposition to the Nazi state control of the churches, Niemöller was imprisoned in Dachau concentration camp from 1938 to 1945. He narrowly escaped execution. After his imprisonment, he expressed his deep regret about not having done enough to help victims of the Nazis. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. Winston Churchill, the world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without doing anything. Albert Einstein, pretty smart Jewish guy. John 321, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That's God's word. Amen. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Steve Gill, for reminding us there can be truth, there can be news, and sometimes there is true news. Not often enough. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time and glory to God. Stick around. We've got some bonus material for you from Steve's latest interview on The Final Countdown. Well, we have a guest to help us uh, talk about this, um, Steve Abramowitz. He's the owner and CEO of the Mill Creek View and the host of the Mill Creek View podcast. Steve Thanks for joining us here on The Final Countdown. I've got a question for you and uh, about this rural tour, uh, on the Biden-a-Palooza, the barnstorming tour. Uh, it's so funny that he's, of course, using this very old-timey kind of expression because he, he, he likes to say things like malarkey that nobody else ever says uh, outside of the nursing home. And even then, that's like the old part of the nursing home. Um, I, I'm just wondering, you know, what about abortion? Uh, it seems like abortion is the secret sauce for Democrats next year. If they're going to prevail, it's their number one issue. They Bidenomics isn't going anywhere, whether that's fair or not. But, uh, you know, we have abortion on the ballot in Ohio, a state that used to be swingy, but now is considered a red state. Uh, it's definitely going to uh, be codified and end up on in the state constitution uh, as of next Tuesday night. Um, Kentucky, Kansas, places like that. Uh, where abortion um, is has has outperformed expectations in what are supposedly red states, um, is that part of the mix for Biden? Oh yeah. Uh, first of all, hello. Thanks for having me back on. Um, he is taking time away from the beach now that uh, winter is here. <laughs> and if you look at the calendar, you know it's cold, right, over there in Delaware. But it's exactly one year to the day from election. 2024, and he's been to Hawaii, who got 
$700 each after the fires. And Israel, he's been there getting billions. And Ukraine, near a quarter trillion of our money, but not East Palestine, Ohio, to this day. So it's nice he found time to go to Minnesota before it gets too cold um, uh, because they're pissed. They have to basically go do a, a an apology tour, so to speak, not like Obama did to apologize for past sins, but for the neglect of the Midwest uh, and the industrial base of this country for the last three years to say, like, oh, don't forget, I'm still here. And so, you know, I have this thing. Um, uh, CNN.com has the fear and greed speedometer, right, for the stock market. I have a pissed off a meter for politics, and it's been pretty good at predicting. Um, you look at the demographics like you do TV ratings and see if many or most are mad. Biden has made everyone in the Democratic uh, demographics, uh, even the late night comedy hosts, mad. And so I think what he's basically trying to do, or at least his handlers are to do, is go out there and see if he can do a little song and dance to remind everybody he's still their guy. And I'm afraid it's not going to work. Really? So do you think $5 billion is enough? Is that going to like wet farmers' appetites? And it's it, it, it kind of, you know, and I guess every president does this, every sitting president does this for their reelection. They can allocate money, right? They have the ability to, I'm not, I'll say it, buy votes that way. I mean, it's obviously legal, but, you know, they can do that. So is $5 billion going to really kind of say to a farmer who's had to live through two to three years of wokeness, and this, that, and the other uh, to say, okay, yeah, that sounds good. I'll take that. I'll vote for Biden. No, ma'am, because the the farmers are not his natural constituency. It's more like the blacks are mad at him for turning on the rappers for their anti-social, anti-violence music. That worked for Bill Clinton with his sister soldier moment to get the middle, but it's not going to work for Biden. The lesbians and gays are mad at Biden for embracing the T of the LGBT movement and letting them play girls sports that upset mama bears too. And that's Midwest. So no, uh, it worked for Obama with gay marriage, but it's not going to work for, you know, white guy Joe. So the big businesses, this is where he's basically taking a tour of is mad because he went 100% for the unions against the automakers who went along to lose billions in electric vehicles for his green new deal. And he stabbed them in the back with huge new contracts. They can't afford to get them all back to work to get it out of the headlines for this one-year uh, sprint, if he can do that with his walker, to the uh, finish line of, of November 4th next year. So, no, I don't think pandering with money, just like reparations, just like college loan forgiveness, any of this throw money around is really, is ultimately going to help the pocketbooks of the people that matter, like people who want to drink water in Flint or want to food from the farms in Ohio when it's what Democrats would result to do knee jerk problem. But even the teachers are mad at dropping out of and dropping out uh, of not only their job, but that means their union dues because they're employed because the Department of Education ruined their job. They'll blame him and the Dems for it and Randy Weingarten, but, you know, the biggest Dem of them all. So uh, I just don't think money is going to work. And it's too soon. You ever heard of peak too soon in politics? Throwing money around now is too soon. That money will be all gone with inflation that he caused, and they know it because they have to go to the grocery store and fill their gas tanks where those trucks have to move from state to state. So I know that's a rant, but he's made everybody mad along the spectrum, and I just don't think they're going to be excited to vote for him. And then you got the wild card of uh, Robert F. Kennedy. 
you do. Um, what if you, we can talk about that a little, but I want to first ask about, let's just say like uh, about the 5 billion, look, uh, this is the government. It's not like that money is going to, after being allocated, is going to end up in anyone's pockets, even by November of 2024, you know, I mean, for real. Uh, but uh, I was going to say, uh, in t I wanted to ask you sort of about a counterfactual. Uh, when Richard Nixon was in trouble uh, with the Watergate, uh, he decided to play up his uh, international standing by going to China, uh, where he was still not, you know, where he was able to take control of the narrative in a way that he couldn't on domestic politics anymore, um, you know, with the, with the exception, obviously, of Vietnam, uh, which also was kind of out of his control by then. And it was his place to shine. Um, I know that the, this Biden barnstorming tour of rural America was planned, obviously, weeks and months ahead of time, but they could have canceled it. We're in the middle of a major Middle Eastern crisis, and uh, the optics are you have the president out, out on the cornfield. Um, so is this kind of an anti-Nixon, like, a you know, and it's the reverse Nixon approach? Uh, foreign policy is not going so well. So uh, let's like focus on domestic because that's a better optic. I mean, you know, at this stage, 49 percent of Americans are sympathetic to uh, to the Israelis. Uh, but that's pretty low. Uh, Ninety one percent of, of Americans were in favor of invading Afghanistan after 9-11. Forty nine percent at the beginning of a war is uh, is pretty bad. Uh, and it's only going to go down from there. So is it uh, is this an opportunity? You're looking at the Gen Z demographic for that because the older folks who remember 1968 uh, that you're talking about don't feel that way at all. They're they're overwhelmingly pro-Israel. And by the way, I'm so glad you mentioned this because I'm a lover of history and I look at these things. Republican in office during Vietnam, anti-war protests created many of the politicians that we see today. Jews that vote overwhelmingly for Democrats since 1968. They are the most pissed off of them all, and it's mostly because the administration is embracing these Hamas killers and won't do anything with the violence here at home. Assaults on Jews are way up versus Muslims per the FBI crime statistics. And Kamala Harris comes out yesterday with a new anti-Islamophobic department, even with those same stats showing a decline of violence against Islamics, even with what's going on in the Middle East. So, again, another natural a constituency of the administration that they've made mad. So if he was to do what you just suggested, what, and Nixon was reelected with the largest uh, landslide since Washington, by the way, if he were to do this and all of a sudden become a pro-war um, president to try to do that, he wouldn't work because they're on the wrong side. And we all know that they really love Iran. And so the illegal immigrants here have made the legal immigrants mad which are also very, you know, pro-democratic. If you look in the past, six to eight million new illegals arriving, they always hate that since they played by the rules at great cost and time and created businesses that the new arrivals get free benefits that he's throwing out like this $5 million billion. So I'm mad at him too for that. You know, we're at $34 trillion in debt, $1 trillion this year, a lot of it on his watch. So he's not the, let's say, pro-war anti-communist president like Nixon was. He's not the fiscally conservative president, say like Reagan was, or even Clinton in his second, uh, well, yeah, second uh, after the midterms when he had to work with Newt Gingrich. So Biden just doesn't have the juice that an Obama or a Clinton or even a Kennedy had to 
um, appease the voters that would come out for him. And that's why I think a, a, a spoiler who's actually running on a promise of being a spoiler in the 2024 election is Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, Quinnipiac University just had a poll. Yeah, Quinnipiac. Makes my case. Yeah, they, they just had a poll that makes my case. People don't want Biden for what Biden's offering. They'd rather, independents at least, would rather have what Robert F. Kennedy is offering if they want to vote Democrat. And then, of course, we'll have to see if it's going to be Trump on the other side. And he'd probably uh, win just as a vindication vote for, for those that don't believe he uh, lost fair and square. Steve, um, I do want to get your thoughts about RFK Jr. and this uh, 20, and the effect. The, the effect uh, apparently, um, according to political political analysis, and there's been other polls that suggested that uh, RFK will tend to pull more from the Republican side than the Democratic side. If he didn't run, it would be more likely to help um, uh, Trump. But I wanted to, but I do want to push back a little bit on something that you said. I, I'm I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden again. But is it really fair to say that he's coddling Hamas killers, uh, as you said? I, I wanted just to, to you to explain that, because, I mean, seems to me like he's he's coddling them with 14 billion dollars in, in in bombs. You know, did I did I say the word coddling? I hate that word. I hope I didn't. If I did, I apologize to you and your listeners. Did I say the word coddling? I thought I heard that. Yeah. Uh, maybe appeasing would be a little better by trying to get uh, Israel to not. Um, invade that is, in my opinion, appeasing, um, not not coddling. Coddling would be actually handing them checks and saying go kill people. That that's not that's not aiding and abetting. So I I didn't mean that, but he is, and the administration is, and Karine Jean Pierre is, and Kirby are saying things that you would um, only do if you wanted Gaza to remain a disaster area versus let Israel go in there and clean it out. So by being on that side of it. It's a little bit like siding with the unions and the GM strike. You pick sides, um, whether it's the right side or the wrong side, is up to you to decide. But you're supposed to be neutral in international affairs, and he's not doing that. And what about RFK? Um, you know, how much of a factor is he? I mean, 22 percent now, in theory, is one thing, but that's not 22 percent on you know the on the first Tuesday after the first November of 2024, right? It's uh, it's not. So uh, in reality, how much of a factor is he really going to be, do you think? The, the hardcore Dems are going to vote hardcore Dem. You are apparently not. Good for you. The hardcore Republicans are going to vote, vote hardcore Republicans. A lot of MAGA folks are like that, and that's fine. The middle is where it always matters, the independents. And if you look at that same poll, Quinnipiac University, 36% shows Robert F. Kennedy, only 31 Trump, and 30 Biden, last place. So those are the pissed off at people I'm talking about, the independents and all those natural constituency that are not hardcore Dems and would vote for any Dem, no matter if it was Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck. So the point is, is that that number right there should put the fear of God into anyone who wants to run for president to do better. And that's why Biden is probably going out there because he's in third place amongst independents with a guy who, you know, he, he is raising some good money, but you're right. We haven't had a third party winner since, uh, uh, let's see, Teddy Roosevelt lost. So who would that have been? Uh, maybe Lincoln when the Republicans were third party. So that is that should scare him for re-election as long as Robert F. Kennedy stays in the race um, as a, uh, with independent voters. He raised $10 million last quarter from large dollar donors. So obviously, like I said, the businesses that are mad at him, the rappers that are mad at him, the entertainers who are mad at him, who write these big checks, 
decided to choose Robert F. Kennedy over Biden when he's going to need it more than anybody else. So in a highly competitive race, if it's 50-50 Trump, like it was Gore versus Bush in 2000, those independent voters that prefer John F. Kennedy to him could pull a Ralph Nader here. And even if it's the national vote was like 2 or 3%, get yourself Trump or whoever the Republican is. Yeah. So I think I think what happens with third parties, Steve, and is I think history bears that out is they tend to bring out a lot of new voters who would not otherwise vote. Uh, they don't tend to. Of course, by percentage, the net aggregate is it can pull away percentage votes, but it's not like it's really bringing. And I think, you know, the Ralph Nader factor was wildly uh, I think it was unfair that he was uh, so vil- pilloried and vilified. Uh, by liberal Democrats for supposedly denying the state of Florida to Al Gore in 2000. But that we will leave there and uh, we will revisit uh, with Steve in the future. Steve Abramowitz is the owner and CEO of the Mill Creek View and the host of the Mill Creek View podcast. Thanks, Steve, for joining us. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.